This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to the website sands-trustee.com or better yet, call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation. Find an office near you. Regular thing that we do on the show, a bit of a sort of a client roundup. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's important. uh, And these are things that are just sort of interesting, either clients you've had or interesting stuff that's come in your mail. And that's what we're first going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Something from the Royal Bank, which is so interesting. Well, I thought so, Elaine. I hope the listeners think so as well. And I think a lot of people probably received this notification. Um, But if you're anything like me, it's like the iTunes, you know, end user agreement. You scroll through, you click, I agree, you don't actually read any of this stuff, you figure it's going to be forced on you anyway. Right. Um, But I got this notice from the Royal Bank, and I've got a Royal Bank credit card. It says, important changes to your RBC Royal Bank credit card agreement. Please read and keep for your records, which I'm a diligent person. I'm going to do that. Right. And what they said is, effective August 1st, um, our cardholder agreement is being amended in accordance with new Quebec law. Okay. And so I thought that was interesting. So there's new laws in Quebec. I wonder if these laws are better for consumers or worse for consumers and what the differences are. And as I read through, Elaine, it looks like Quebec's getting a heck of a better treatment than we are here and definitely across the country, it appears. See, my first thought would have been, oh, based on what's going on in Quebec, they're making changes to their policy across the country. No. But no, that's not the case. No, it looks to me like there's been a change in law. And of course, the the credit card company has to address it within Quebec. So they're creating essentially two, two sets of rules, one rule for inside of Quebec and one rule for outside of Quebec. And the first aspect that jumped out to me about that was about minimum payments. Interesting. And we talk a lot in this show about minimum payments, that if you're only making the minimum payments, you're essentially trapped in that cycle of debt. You're paying 20, 30% interest. Um, you know, even a small debt, a $6,000 debt can keep you in there for 40 years. Exactly. And I've mentioned it before, but let's go into detail here because it's spelled out in black and white. Here is how a minimum payment is actually calculated for Royal Bank as of now. So your monthly statement will indicate your minimum payment. It will normally be any interest and fees shown in the calculating your balance section of your monthly statement plus $10. Okay. I'm not kidding, plus $10. So what that means, you could have charged a ton of purchases to the cards. What you're going to pay is your interest on things you've already charged long ago, your charges, and $10 is going to draw down your balance. So talk about making a minimum payment and not seeing your debt go anywhere. You might pay $200 and 190 of that is gone. It's just for interest and charges. Right. So that's what everyone is subject to right now. Now, what is Quebec doing about this is what it looks like to me is Quebec has figured out this minimum payment thing. It's a misnomer. Nobody should be contemplating just making the minimum payments and thinks they're doing, they're doing okay. So what Quebec has done now, and this is what's disclosed in the cardholder agreement, is if you reside in Quebec, your minimum payment will normally be 5% of the new balance shown on calculating your balance. 5% of the balance outstanding compared to $10, that's a massive difference. What that means is that consumers are going to see a credit card that's 
going to be basically 20 payment plan. You're going to be required to pay it off, you know, 5% a month. You're not looking at multiple years, six years, 40 years or whatever to clear things off. And would that balance, sorry, would that balance include the interest and all that stuff in it as well? Or is that just the balance balance of what you owe? What they've said is it's just the balance balance. So the okay. new balance, which I assume they're going to add to the balance, you know, your interest charges, your finance charges and okay. your purchases, but of the total amount, you're required to pay 5%. So much, much different. Again, really, to me, changing the psychology of a credit card to something that, yeah, you shouldn't plan to carry things for more than 20 months on a credit card. That, that's right. not a good way to be. And it's interesting, too, that they put a transitional plan in there as well, that if you had a credit card prior to August 1st of 2019, which is all, when all this stuff comes into effect, your minimum payment is going to start at 2.5%, and then it's going to increase in increments of 0.5% annually until 2024. So they're bringing all credit cards up to date on this, but they're doing it basically on a a little bit of a staggered um, type of a, of a way. Super interesting. So mm-hmm. for those of you who always thought that the rest of the country operates under one set of rules and mm-hmm. Quebec operates under another set of rules, you're kind of right. Case in point here. Case in point. And from my point of view as an insolvency trustee, I think it would be far better if minimum payments were actually something reasonable that got you out of debt in 20 months. Right. Something like that, as opposed to something that keeps you in debt for 40 years and you just keep paying it $10 a month at a time and the bank makes a ton of money off you over the years. And it would move people to realize that they're that they're in trouble. Yes. If they can't make those payments. Exactly. I'm, I'm sunk here. Yeah. I can't do this. I, I've tried to do it this month and I, I it doesn't look like, like I can do it next month. Mm-hmm. So now I need help. Oh, and that's a brilliant insight. Elaine, because, you know, a lot of the time people come through the door to me when they can't make the minimum payments anymore. And if your minimum payment is 10 bucks plus your interest, that's a lot more runway as opposed to 5% of your balance. As that balance gets big, you're going to see, okay, I've got a problem. Let me get some help. Let's head it off. So it's actually going to help a consumer uh, in a couple of different ways. Yes, I believe so. In Quebec. A yeah. Quebec consumer. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what happens here too. You know, are we going to see credit card delinquency rates rise because, you sure. know, their minimum payments are going to be higher? Are we yes. going to see insolvency rates rise? I don't know. Quebec already has the highest bankruptcy rate in the country by quite a bit. So okay. I'm not sure if this is going to impact that one way or another, um, but I just thought just night and day difference about a law that I think is going to improve things for consumers, more transparency, help them get out of debt, as opposed to what we're all going to be subject to, which is 10 bucks of your hard-earned money goes to reduce your balance. Got it. And you doing the job that you do as a licensed insolvency trustee, will you see data to come in the in the coming months mm-hmm. or year uh, of what kind of impact that will have on oh, Quebec yeah. residents? Oh, yeah. There's okay. national insolvency st- uh, standards that okay. come out. Now, there's always a lag. You know, when this change happens, it'll probably be six to 12 months before sure. any volumes change, but it's something I think a lot of trustees will be keeping an eye on. Absolutely. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, as part of our client roundup, oh, let's... Oh, sorry. One more. Oh, one more yeah, piece. Sorry, one buddy. more piece. Oh, no. This one was the big one. The minimum payments really kind of stuck in my craw okay. there. But a second one, um, you know, I'm not a fan of all these little fees and charges and things. And I know it's where the bank can really make a lot of their extra income. But from a client, you don't often know about these fees until you're charged them. And one that I hear of a lot is the over limit fee. Okay. And the way this is disclosed here is we may from time to time allow the amount you owe us to exceed your credit limit by authorizing transactions in excess of your credit limit. Very nice of them, right? We'll allow you to owe more than your limit. We'll authorize a transaction. An over limit fee will be charged to your account when your balance exceeds your credit limit at any time during your monthly statement. Okay. Okay. And how much is that over limit fee? Well, it's $29. It's not nothing. 
right? You go right. over over your balance, even by fifty dollars. You got a thousand dollar limit. You charge to a thousand and fifty, and they approve that transaction. You're paying a twenty nine dollar over limit fee. Yes. Now, if you keep reading down the fine print here, one of the last sentences: the over limit fee does not apply if you reside in Quebec. <laughs> that's so there you go. Fascinating. Uh-huh. So the banks, wow. I think they're prepared to have a lot less profitable customers in the province of Quebec, and they're going to subsidize it from elsewhere. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Okay. Now we can go to clients. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of clients that have been in my offices recently. And the last couple months, Elaine, things have just been off the hook. The phone's ringing like crazy. A lot of people are coming in with a lot of challenges. Um, nothing really new or different, perhaps a little more payday loans than in the past, but just a lot of people really feeling stretched. So two examples I wanted to talk about today. Um, you know, the first one was a service industry manager, uh, a gentleman I sat down with. He was age 48 years old and he had accumulated about $21,000 of debt uh, across three different credit cards. Uh, he'd been doing fine until he was rent evicted and the long-term tenancy came to a really abrupt end. And I'm seeing more and more of that. You know, people yes. um, had rents, you know, that was maybe $800 a month. Uh, they're rent evicted. And when they can find a new place, it's $1,500 yeah. a month or more. And this is not even in the downtown core. This is, you know, North Burnaby was the, was the situation. Um, so this person ended up incurring uh, credit card debt to make ends meet. And his minimum payments are more than $600 per month, which was basically just covering the interest as, as we talked about here. Right. Uh, he was starting to miss payments and was receiving threats that his wages would soon be garnished or seized. So the mm-hmm. creditors were calling, they were sending letters saying, you know, our next step is to take legal alternative steps, uh, which would mean that his wages would come. Right. So what did we do? Yeah, what did you do? Well, we, as we always do, we explored all of the available options. You know, we looked at the new rental cost and we figured out, um, you know, this gentleman was just not going to be able to pay this debt down over time. His fixed costs had increased so much every month. Uh, what we did figure out was that he could afford a monthly payment of about $125. Um, that could fit into his budget, still allow him rent, shelter, car, and things like that. And what we worked out was a $125 proposal over a 60-month period would be a total repayment of $7,500. So he walked in owing $21,000 plus interest. Uh, people you know, at the door saying that they're going to be seizing his wages. We filed a consumer proposal for just over a third of the total amount no further interest, all costs are included, and no worries about being garnished. And I was so happy when we sat down, we signed off on a budget that included all the obligations, included the proposal payment, and I just saw him breathe a sigh of relief as saying, okay, I've made it through the crisis now, I've got the new apartment, it's way too much compared to what I was paying before, but at least my debts have been able to you know, scale down to match. Yeah, and you can handle that, mm-hmm. handle that. Exactly. Excellent. And do we still have time for one more? I think we've got one more. Yes. Great. Uh, and this one, uh, definitely this is an aspect that I see a lot of is with student loans. So in this situation, there's another gentleman uh, who was previously self-employed and he had accumulated a bunch of student loans in his past. Um, so he's a 44-year-old male, had a series of self-employed business over the last 10 years, mainly working in the film industry. Okay. I have a lot of clients in the film industry and for the most part, they're typically contractors, which means that they have to remit their own taxes, sometimes their own GST. Yes. And what a lot of employers, or not employers, but I guess contractors, um, are requiring is that you show to them that you've got no CRA debt, that you're sorting out your business every every year with oh. the government, um, because they don't want somebody on set that suddenly gets garnished. They have to deal with things. So a lot of yeah, a lot of film industry clients, um, they, as soon as there's the first sniff of an issue with CRA, they come in to see us and we sort things out. Excellent. Um, in this situation, the gentleman had some severe medical issues that forced him to close down his business, and he was now working as an employee, um, but at a much lower wage than before. 
before. Mm-hmm. Um, he had accumulated about $73,000 of debt, so significantly more than our first example. That's huge. They, yeah, oh, indeed. You can just imagine. And this was across six credit cards, two oh. lines of credit, and a student loan. Oh, you know, man. some months he told me he was manically moving money around. He felt like a day trader just trying to get things to, you know, fit. Yeah. Uh, he had filed his taxes recently and he was expecting a large refund, which, you know, would have really helped. But CRA seized the tax refund because he was delinquent on his student loans. Uh-huh. Um, he was worried that his creditors were going to sue him and he was barely able to carry his minimum payments as his income was around $2,200 a month after taxes. Okay. So what did we do? Yeah, what did you do? Well, we again reviewed all of the options. He considered filing for bankruptcy. And what would have happened based on his income and his lack of assets, his creditors would have received nothing back into bankruptcy. He okay. would have just paid the minimum trustee fees and that would be it. Um, instead, he decided to offer a proposal. And it was a bit of a lower proposal that I thought they might not accept, but we tried it. And he offered a proposal of $18,000 on a debt of $73,000. Wow. So about 25% repayment. And it was a proposal of $300 a month over a term of 60 months. So in sum, we took an impossible debt burden of about $73,000, we reduced it by 75%, and we gave him five years to pay off that reduced balance at 300 a month. See, and that restores so much too, just knowing that I, I am paying my debt, I'm doing everything that I can do, mm-hmm. uh, is pretty extraordinary for this guy. Yeah, and, and just in case there's any questions out there in the listeners, he did have a student loan, and because he had been out of school for more than seven years, the student loan is the same as every other debt. It was part of the proposal. It doesn't come out the other side. This dealt with 100% of his issue. Excellent. If any of this is resonating with you, go check out the website for Sands and Associates. It's sands-trustee.com. Their website just chock-a-block full with some great questions and very thorough answers. And if you want to sit down and talk to somebody, that's easy to do as well. 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you where you can sit down and talk about your situation and see if there's something that Sands and Associates can do. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on anything that we talk about on the show, make sure you go to the website, sands-trustee.com. Loads of good answers uh, and questions and answers uh, for things that might come up for you. So, facing a bank account or a wage garnishment, super stressful and very overwhelming. But what happens specifically, because I didn't even think about this, uh, is a, is when a bank is garnishing mm-hmm. the money in your bank account. So yeah. uh, my first kind of question about that was how, how often does that happen in your world when you talk to people? Well, you'd be really surprised. And usually the way in terms of how often it happens, quite often, yes. and usually the way that it happens is that you've got your daily banking account and you've got your credit card account and suddenly you go delinquent, you've missed a few payments, so on and so forth. And then you put a deposit into your checking account. Maybe you're about to pay your rent the next day and suddenly that money's there, not there anymore. It's gone because the bank has seized it and they've taken it to apply against an overdue debt. Okay. So within the same institution, that happens quite often. Banks have the right to offset a debt against an asset. And if you're delinquent with the bank, um, I encourage you not to do your daily banking there at the same time. And that's the key there, because we've talked about that before, Mm -hmm. the same institution. So if you bank at the Royal, for example, and then you've got a Royal Bank credit card, Mm -hmm. 
they're working together there. Oh, yeah. it's, it's the same umbrella, just yeah. different pieces. Yeah, you're so, making you're making it too easy for the banks. And again, I believe everyone should have an individual responsibility to pay their debts. Yes. But if it's you're in a really tough spot, you literally can't pay and your rent money is about to get seized by your credit card company, that's not a good result of being at the same institution. If you had your checking and savings account at a different bank, they would have to go through all the steps we're about to talk to here to actually get at your money. So within the same institution, you're always at risk of having your your assets seized if you get behind on your debts. One more question before we get into the meat of this. Does it matter if I'm a member of a credit union or a client at a bank? It absolutely does not. So those rules are the same. Banks and credit unions will both exercise the rights of offset. I've seen that. Okay, good. Yes. All right. So so here we are. We're talking... Your situation, you talk to people all the time uh, that have questions about this. Mm-hmm. What uh, what kind of uh, garnishments or assignments are out there? Yeah, what, are, it, what are people facing these yeah, days? Yeah, and let's be clear about the terminology, you know, a garnishment or an assignment. It's basically a seizure. It's something being taken from you. It's an asset that you have that you really probably didn't want to give up, um, but through, you know, no choice of your own, it's been taken from you. Okay. And how can that happen or what can be taken? Well, first off, you know, a bank account can be seized. Um, income tax refunds can be seized. GST and HST credits, so the quarterly checks that a lot of people, a lot of folks get in the province here, those can be seized. Uh, Your rental or your lease payments even. Um, Insurance claim proceeds. So it's a pretty long list of of different sources of funds um, that could potentially be subject to seizure. And and even investment. Yes. Investment money, which is... Yeah, interesting. Yeah, now typically not an RRSP. They can't force you to deregister. Of course. But a non-registered fund, yeah, definitely it could happen. Or if I'm getting regular um, uh, payments, or not mm-hmm. payments, but cash out of my investments, mm-hmm. would that be impacted as well? Could it that could fall be. under? Could oh, be? yeah, and any money that you've basically put into your account could be subject to a seizure okay. if someone goes through the right steps. All right. Uh, so how does a bank account seizure work And how does a creditor go about putting that in place, getting Mm -hmm. that started? Yeah, it's quite similar to a wage seizure, which we talked about in in previous shows here. Uh, To get a garnishing order for a bank account, the creditor first needs to get a judgment against you proving the debt. Uh, Once they do that, then they're able to fill out and file a garnishing order. And if it's under $25,000, it can be done in the small claims court registry. Uh, Once they've got the garnishing order, a registrar will sign it and then provide the creditor's copies that they will then serve your bank. Uh, Once a creditor has those orders, they provide copies to the bank and direct the bank to pay them the money owing from your bank account into the court. And from there, the creditor applies to the court to get the money taken out um, and to their benefit. So there's a few different steps they have to do, uh, but it's all relatively straightforward. It can be done through small claims court. Now, did I understand this correctly? Not once did you talk about me Mm -hmm. as somebody whose money is being taken. Mm -hmm. Do I get an opportunity to show up at any of these things? Do I know that this is going on before? it's too late and the money's taken? Well, when they get a judgment against you, you have to be given notice at that time. So if a judgment is against you, yes. But after that, from proceeding to a garnishment, typically you don't get that notice. So if you've ignored the judgment, sorry, the judgment hearing and it just gets made against you, you probably won't know the next step until you've seen that that some assets have been taken from you. Okay. Now, how much or, uh, yeah, how much can they take? Everything. Everything. Yeah, there's there's no exemption saying, okay, we'll leave the person $1,000 to pay rent or buy groceries. 100% of funds subject to a garnishment could be taken. So even if I'm a single person and I've got children in the home and all that kind of stuff, 
that's just the way it is. Unless you've got a joint account, a joint account couldn't be seized unless they had a judgment against both people. But yeah, if you're an individual and you've been you know, sued and you've got some money in the bank, that money is at risk that it could be garnished. So is that a plus then? I mean, it sounds to me like a plus to do joint account if you can. There's a little bit of an extra layer of protection there. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, you know, most of the time, unless you're getting into trouble with your debts, it's typically not too much of an issue. You're not having people suing you and getting garnished. But yeah, if you're on a precarious situation, um, a joint bank account might not be a bad thing to at least stop you from being garnished, um, you know, without any of your notice. Got it. So any exceptions for any of this? Well, the government is their own kettle of fish here. So a, com- a complete exem- exemption to, exception to this. Uh, the government can issue what's called a requirement to pay and they can do that with no notice to you at all. Um, They can serve that to a client if you're self-employed or they can just basically issue that to your financial institution. Uh, It's called, you know, a bank account freeze or a bank account seizure, Uh, but the government can basically shortcut that whole court application that we talked about and just essentially do it. Now, they don't do it out of the blue if you're up to date with them and you don't have any debt, but if you're delinquent and things went on for periods of time and the government's aware there's some pot of money sitting in the bank, they will not hesitate to go and seize that money. Okay. Okay, so what about non-government creditors? What uh, are are they able to do the same thing, or how does it work for them? Yeah, and that's the right of offset. So we talked about that a little bit on the on the outset here. And my whole you know number one piece of advice for anybody is never borrow where you keep your monthly income. So mm-hmm. if you've got a credit card at one bank, make sure that you bank with a different bank or a credit card company. Because if you don't do that, you've shortcutted this whole court thing. If you're delinquent with a bank, they have the right to offset your debt against your asset. They could go into your account if you missed a minimum payment on your credit card, take out that minimum payment, take out extra charges with no regard to where that might leave you. Okay. So is it okay if we go to the next question about the difference between a bank account seizure and garnishment and a bank account freeze? Can you sort of give us a... a Reader's Digest version? Oh, certainly, yeah. So a bank account seizure is exactly what it sounds like in that whatever's in your bank account has been taken. It's been seized. It's no longer there. And that money is not coming back. It's been paid into court. And if you intervene very quickly, you might be able to convince the court, okay, well, I need that money out for whatever. But most of the time that doesn't happen. The money goes into court, gets paid out relatively quickly. Bank account freeze is something that CRA does. And a bank account freeze means that essentially the account can't move. It's it's frozen where it is right there, but they haven't taken the funds yet. What they've done, they often do this to self-employed people, is to get your attention. So if they know a self-employed person is running everything through their account, they can see lots of money going, but they're getting no money for GST. They know the person should be paying and filing GST on time. They might freeze that account, get the person to phone into CRA and say, okay, the condition of us unfreezing that account is that you file all these returns up to date, you make the payments as we talked about, and then they'll unfreeze the account. So if you don't deal with CRA, that account will remain frozen. Then often after a period of time, they will seize the funds. Uh, But when your account is frozen, it doesn't necessarily mean that the funds are gone right away. Right, but it also means that you can't access them. Exactly, yeah. And again, if you're a self-employed person, you're probably money in, money out multiple times per day that can grind you to a halt. Okay, how can you stop this? Can you stop any of this? Does Is there something that you can do? There's kind of three ways you can come at it. So the first way is you could apply to court to have the garnishing order set aside if you can prove that there's serious hardship and it's not necessary to ensure that you pay. That's very rare that that happens, but you can get the court to reconsider. Um, Second is you could negotiate with the creditor and try to work out a reasonable payment plan. Now, if you could have paid them, you probably would have been paying them already, but it is an option to consider. The third way is to sit down with somebody like myself, a licensed insolvency trustee, any bankruptcy or consumer proposal filing immediately stops a wage garnishment. 
stops a bank account freeze. It stops a bank account seizure. I'll just mention the phone number if you want to get a hold of Blair and his staff at at uh, Sands and Associates, and they've got 15 offices in the province. 1-800-661-3030. And get that consultation as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Hey, for information on any of the services we talk about on the show, don't forget to go to the website, sands-trustee.com, or better yet, give their uh, 1-800 number a call. It's 1-800-661-3030 to get that free consultation and to find an office near you. So, uh, hottest topic everywhere, not just in British Columbia, Lower Mainland, is real estate. Uh, Real estate, real estate values, if you're in the market, if you've already bought in the market, you want to get into the market, you want to get out of the market, uh, largest investment you'll ever make. Uh, Our guest is Steve Soretsky, a Vancouver residential realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs, widely considered, now this is pretty nice, Steve, a thought leader in the industry. How do you you take that, being a thought leader? Uh. I don't know. It might be a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, trying trying to put out some content here to keep sort of people informed about what's going on. So. And I think mm-hmm. that's really a good point that you make because yeah, you are putting out content. You do blog. You do you blog on a regular basis, weekly basis, from what I could see when I went to your website, uh, which is just I'll throw this out and you'll you'll hear it again from us, stevesoretsky.com. And there's YouTube videos as well. You do uh, so just lots and lots of good information. You're a huge contributor to a lot of media outlets. Uh, BNN, CBC, us, of course, CTV, uh, as well as contributor to BC Business Magazine. So you are a guy that knows a great deal about it. And I also like the fact, doing a little bit of reading from you, is that you have... um, you sort of look at it from an interesting position in that it's a real umbrella look. It's not something that you look at it from a whole bunch of different places, but give a pretty good overview for anybody, depending on where they are in the market, coming in, going out, like I say, uh, to get some information that they might not otherwise have. So real estate is what we're going to talk about in this segment. Um, First question, do you want to give it or shall you well, go? You go, Blair. Yeah, I think it's the, the million dollar question, so so to speak. I guess that's the average house in Vancouver these days. <laughs> but um, you know, given the rise in debt and obviously the run up in house prices, how vulnerable do you think we've become to a shock or a downturn in the housing market? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously there's been well documented. I don't necessarily need to say it, but obviously you know record levels of household indebtedness. I mean, debt yeah. to income is what 178, 179. Yeah, we were just chatting income. about that earlier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Various organizations have flagged that, you know, the IMF, the BIS. So uh, these are definitely reputable people. The Bank of Canada has talked about it. So I think, you know, we have built it up a lot on rising home prices. And as I'm sure you can attest that, uh, you know, insolvency rates or sort of bankruptcy and default rates on your house isn't necessarily an indicator of the strength of the market Mm -hmm. or uh, the resilience of households. Because as long as house prices continue to rise, 
you sort of have that buffer where you can refinance your home, you can tap into a home equity line, so you can sort of extend and pretend. Yeah, and, and Steve, I've seen that just year after year. Um, people that made the wrong financial decision, which is, you know, go crazy, buy the biggest house you can afford, put the down payment on the credit card, so on and so forth, but it was the right decision. When the house goes up 30 or 40% in the year, so it validated a lot of bad behavior. Um, and then the other heartbreaking thing is just seeing people have had this big run-up, you know, maybe they bought the house for 50 or 100,000, now it's worth 2 million, but they pulled out the equity every five years when they renewed the mortgage. Um, so I've seen a lot of kind of the bad behaviors, which you've been able to hide for a while as the market rises. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, that's the thing is it becomes so ingrained because it's just, it's worked for 20 years now, or it's been a yeah. 20 year bull market where prices continue to rise. You have tiny little uh, pockets of illiquidity. So, you know, 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. soft market for about, you know, eight or nine months. And that then, was kind of the last time when things yeah, slowed down a and bit. And then right? really mm-hmm. backed up. So, unlike the US, we kind of, um, you know, skated through the last one. And, and uh, unfortunately, you know, I think right now we've actually probably had the longest correction, I think, than, that we've seen in quite some time. And it's mm-hmm. there's definitely still some legs to it. And when do you think that started? Are we talking the last few months is when I've started to hear about, you know, 30-year lows and volumes, things like that. Yeah. Right? I mean, like the the sales, like volumes peaked out in 2016 and then volumes mm. tend to lead prices. So uh, the sales volumes basically peaked out in 2016. And then over the last year, year and a half, you've started to see prices really start to come off, particularly in the detached uh, single family segment. Uh, but that has started to move over to the condo segment. Uh, you're starting to see some dis- distress with um, people that have sort of stretched themselves with some developers that were building sort of on spec. And so you're starting to see some of the malinvestment, I think, is starting to rise to the top. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of development. So I live on Vancouver Island now, uh, but when I come into Vancouver and I see the stuff that's currently being built in terms of towers, it's still pretty extraordinary. There's a lot of building going on. And I worry about two things, not that I not, they need me to worry about them, but the developer for sure, because that's a huge amount of investment that they've made into this property, just let alone the prices when they bought it was extraordinary amount of money and now they're building and then the people who have pre you know who've sold ahead of it going in that worse there's cracks right there's cracks in that market now and i worry about um yeah i worry about the people that are being that are going to be affected by that yeah and i i, I do think it's a growing segment that to me that's one of the most interesting parts or segments of the market moving forward Mm -hmm. is because that market has really been predicated on rising prices. So, you know, basically a pre-sale contract is essentially, it's basically like a a futures contract if you're Mm -hmm. in the finance space. So it's essentially you have this claim on an unfinished unit that, you know, two or three years down the road, you're going to close on it. And so what the developers were doing is basically, you know, the prices were rising exponentially 15, 20% a year, 25% a year. And so everybody just assumed that prices would continue to rise. So the developers are saying, okay, well, if you can buy a, a resale unit today, you know, one or two years old for $1,000 a square foot, you know, we'll charge you 1200 bucks a square foot. And then, you know, by the time it's three years out, that will complete and the market will have been up. So it, it will all work out. Right. And so what you're seeing was people were sort of speculating on that. Some yeah. of them borrowing uh, their deposits from home equity, from mm-hmm. friends and family. They don't actually, some of them don't have the capacity to actually financially close on these. And so they were never there was never any sort of plan to close on them. And now obviously with the market going down is they've become very hard to flip 
and and you know because those find- buyers aren't there, right? That's where the difficulty comes in is because the buyers just aren't there. Yeah. So like a couple of years ago, it was very easy to flip a presale contract because mm-hmm. basically what was happening with some of my clients too is like they're looking at the resale market. They're saying, well, there's no inventory. Every time I try to buy a you know a five year old condo, it gets multiple offers. I get outbid. So yep. why don't I go over and look at this guy's presale contract? Why don't I buy that out? And so there was a lot of liquidity there for that to, to happen. But now everybody's nervous about the market. There's a lot more to pick from. So everybody says, well, I want to be able to walk through the unit, mm. take my time. I don't want to buy you know, some guy's piece of paper. Rightly well, so, too. Who, who right? knows how it gets buyer. built in the end, right? Hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's basically what you're seeing. So that market has become sort of illiquid. And so now you're going to run into, I think, some challenges moving forward. And I had heard, you know, some condo contracts, they'd been be assigned, you know, five, six times. And, you know, people would make money at every every step mm-hmm. of the way here. So it seemed like, yeah, just this market was building up, which fundamentally it shouldn't be there, you would think, for the most part, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, the craze of it, right? And mm-hmm. even with the pre-sale market, like, you were pretty much, a, you're a very lucky person if you get your hands on, like, a pre-sale <laughs> contract. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, right? We saw the stories of people lining up in tents outside pre-sale contract or pre-sale centers, and and uh, it was very secretive, very VVIP. Oh, wow. And, uh, like, certain agents would bring their best clients, and then... Yeah, buy up multiple yeah. units. Realtors would buy up units, mm. then resell them to their clients. And so it's kind of this like speculative game where it's like as long as you could sort of get your hands on this piece of contract, you were, you know, it was, it was a sure way to make money. Oh, well, but that's changed now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> now, it's definitely, definitely changed now. Sure way to lose money, it seems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is because, you know, now as like uh, someone that has a pre sale and you're trying to flip it, is you're actually in almost in direct comparison with the developers. The developers right now are trying to you know release product. They're having a tough time at sales centers. You're seeing you know the, the funny ads, which are like the free avocado toast for a year. <laughs> but you are that. seeing yeah, yeah. Sub- yeah. substantial increases yeah. in incentives to try to get people to buy pre-sales. Right, so uh, buyers basically have a lot of options, and and they're shying away from from pre-sale sort of contracts and whatnot. Hmm. And I guess in the broader sense, you know, what do you what would you say if someone were to say, you know, well, how's the market right now in Vancouver, the, the real estate market? So we touched on pre-sales a bit, but in a broader sense, you know, things good, bad. It sounds to me like we're kind of on the precipice of a few things here, but I don't know, not being that tied to the industry. So what are you seeing? I mean, it's definitely soft. Uh, the weakness is very concentrated uh, at the higher end. So the higher mm. up you go in the price range, like the softer it is. Um, but even like the one bedrooms have have started to come off in price. I mean, you know, one bedroom condo is probably off ten to fifteen percent. So year over year, yeah, so, probably oh, wow. from last year. Like it yeah. peaked out early twenty eighteen. So the prices have definitely come off. Uh, obviously, they're still at very high levels. But um, I look at it from like a sales. The sales numbers really speak for themselves. So if you look at January to the end of April, so it's a four month period. Um, if you take that four month and compare it. To any other four-month period in our history, it's the slowest four-month period for home sales since 1986. Oh, wow. So it's definitely a slow <laughs> market. If you're trying to sell your house, it's like it's not easy to basically get your money out. And I like, wasn't here in 86, but this was a pretty more sleepy town back in 86, well, right? We're talking none of the scale of Vancouver now, Expo, right? Expo yeah. changed it, right? right I mean, we right? really did. We invited <laughs> the world and the world showed up and said, hey, I want to live here. 
this mm. is kind of great. Plus yep. the Hong Kong China thing that changed it. People wanted to move money around, get money out. They didn't want to stay in Hong Kong. They wanted, you know, they wanted mm. the freedom of not having to to uh, to come under the the Chinese rule. I mean, that was the stuff that we were talking about in 1986. Mm. I watched neighborhoods change very quickly. We went from those really lovely old uh, Carisdale and Shaughnessy homes to these mega you know boxes these six and seven and eight thousand square foot boxes on properties yeah Yeah. and it's like whoa how did that happen Mm -hmm. and of course the people have been there for 30 years or 40 years went what's happening to the city and it's really never stopped since then like you said steve we've had ups and downs but boy the overall look of the city has changed so dramatically since 1986 that's kind of that's how i see it just as a, a casual observer right but it's a, but it's an interesting time. I I can't. Uh, I just wonder. You know, I think about what the purpose of this show is, and we're talking about debt and how to help folks. I just wonder how this is all going to impact people in two and three and four years. People mm-hmm. that are going to be coming through your door, uh, either having. Um, yeah, I mean, just ha- having been on the sort of the bad end or the the negative end of of this big change that we're you know, of a soft market, which is going to last, right? It's going to be around for a bit. I think the one thing that I find interesting, I'm sure you probably see it in your business, but like, you know, people always say, well, you know, in terms of people that are foreclosing or whatever Mm -hmm. in their home, like everybody's always under the assumption, well, like, hey, you know, yeah, that only happens to people that maybe bought at the very peak the last two or three years, whatever. Um, But what I see is a lot in the foreclosure documents, Mm Because I, I pull a lot of titles Mm -hmm. and mortgage documents and whatnot. It's actually at times there's a lot of people that bought and like, early 2000s that you oh, would think really? have sort of like this massive equity built up but they should as you see mm-hmm. is they tap into tap into their home as like a ATM you know private lenders maybe they're using that to leverage into pre-sales or buy second and third homes or cars and vacations so it's interesting to see mm-hmm. from my perspective that you yeah very mm-hmm. interesting Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're continuing our conversation with Steve Suretsky, who's a Vancouver residential realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs. We're talking, obviously, about real estate and uh, the changes, uh, the way the market's been and the changes that we're kind of uh, going through at this point and possibly what's in the future, if we can be so bold us to think that we can discuss that or have mm-hmm. some ideas about it. Uh, and so we're going to pick up uh, where we left the conversation off. Yes, yeah, like we were just chatting a little bit, Steve, about foreclosures. I was going to share my experience in that, you know, in the last five years, I've seen the foreclosure-driven bankruptcies almost dwindle down to nothing. So the only foreclosures I'm seeing these days, if I've got some clients who are in Fort McMurray, their houses burned down, the lenders are going through and getting what they can for them. Um, but I'm seeing nothing in the lower mainland. Um, and people are thinking, you know, they often ask me as a trustee, well, you'll be able to tell when the market turns because you'll start to see foreclosures, but there's a big delay. The house is always the last bill that people stop paying, right? And they're going to stop paying the credit cards first, stop sending money to the government for taxes, but the mortgage going into arrears, it's always the last thing to go. Um, so we were chatting a little bit just on the break here, Steve, but I'm curious what you're seeing in the foreclosures. And you were saying to me, it's not necessarily the big banks have made bad loans. It's often the secondary market, which is something a lot of people don't have an idea about. So can we talk a little bit about that too, about private lenders that you're 
seeing and how they might be impacting some foreclosures? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting what you said because I look at that. So I have uh, a database where I sort of keep track of the foreclosure numbers. So in Metro Vancouver, and they ha- yeah, they haven't risen. Hmm. Uh, it, to me, it kind of looks like they've probably bottomed out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the foreclosures that I am seeing is generally almost always involved with a private lender. Mm-hmm. So it's usually someone that has a second mortgage or sometimes even a third, sometimes even a fourth mortgage, Right. Uh, where these, these rates can get upwards of, you know, a second mortgage, you're looking at at least minimum, usually 10%. Wow. Um, you know, thirds can jump up to 15, 16%. Yeah. And so you have these And why people, would someone need a third or a fourth, or even a second? Let's just talk about those I don't uses, know. Right? I think people okay. just tap into their house. And I think sometimes it's used for, for reinvestment into real estate. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily on the same property, but could it could that mean other properties as well? Sometimes, like, yeah, sometimes you'll see um, they are cross-collateralized, mm-hmm. uh, but not it's not that typical right. unless there's like unless there's sort of like a small time developer and they're trying to leverage up all their properties mm-hmm. so they can, you know, get as much money as they can to, to go out and speculate on build single family homes. You see that occasionally, but for the most part, um, it looks to me just like people have sort of these people have over leveraged themselves. Mm. And I think going to a private lender is kind of like your last line of defense, right? Like you've tried the bank first and they said, no, we're comfortable where we are, not going to advance anymore. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you try to, maybe you try to tap your home equity line at, you know, three and a half, four percent. And it's like, if you can't do that, then sort of your next line of defense is the, the private lender. So, Mm. you know, I heard, stories and speaking with lawyers that, you know, put some of the deals together and mortgage brokers is, is a lot of the times it is people that were just like stretching to get in the market. They saw the prices going up. They couldn't get necessarily approved at a, at a big bank. So right. what they do is they enter into the one-year term oh, wow. uh, with the private lender at say first mortgage at say 8%. And uh, their, their plan was basically, well, the market will go up next year. Mm-hmm. I'll then have enough sort of equity built on the property where I can refinance traditionally through, you know, RBC or CIBC or whatever and, uh, you know, pay off my private lender. But what happened was the market didn't go up oh. and it actually kind of flatlined and went down. And so now they're kind of in this position where you're almost stuck at the private lender that you didn't think you were going to be stuck with. Hmm. And in those situations then, so you can't refinance and probably you'd budgeted for a year of those interest payments, not for two plus years. So is that what you're seeing is tipping people into court ordered sales and then having to deal with shortfalls? And, yeah, that's yeah. essentially what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a t- pretty tough situation. Yeah. Same thing with like a lot of the people that, um, you know, build homes for a living, those yeah. like single family houses, they're generally not as well capitalized as like a, you know, a big developer. So what they do is a lot of times they rely on private lending. Right. Um, and so they, now they've built this beautiful, nice, shiny home and they're trying to sell it. And, you know, it takes a year to sell. Yeah. And meanwhile, their carrying costs are at interest rates of 10, 12%. Um, it really starts to eat into your profit margins. And I've started to see some of those clients where it's still too early for me to help them because, you know, they've got the house, it's built, they think if it sells for what they think it should sell for, they're going to be fine. They've got no debt problem. But, you know, say they've started at 2.8 and now it's 2.5. And if it gets to 2.2, they're underwater, they've lost all their investment and they've got a shortfall there. So I think there are a number of folks at that point who, yeah, they've used the private financing to kind of buy some time thinking the market's going to rise. And if it doesn't, that's going to be a tough situation. Yeah, I think, and I think I think there's still a lot of those guys that are really just holding on right now. Yeah, that are just you know it's going to sell any any minute. So I think May here has been busier. June should be a fairly 
busier month from a seasonality perspective. But mm-hmm. uh, as soon as you start to enter those slow summer months, um, you know, if you haven't sold, it's it's going to be. I think it's going to be more challenging. And am I understanding that those people who have the that that one person who's built the home and ready to sell and it's not selling? I mean, there really are small business people, mm-hmm. right? And that's a huge impact on communities when you've got small small businesses not not coming through the way they had planned to, Mm -hmm. that's a big impact, huge impact. Oh, yeah. Potentially beautiful houses, unoccupied, don't sell for a long time. And I'm just thinking about the people who are owning the paper on them, right? And and, and then they're sinking. And that's when you see them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. So, Steve, are you advising people, you know, if they're considering, you know, is now the time to buy or just to stay back? So I was talking to a colleague at my office the other day, and she was going to different open houses, and I was kind of joking a little bit, but I was like, you never want to catch a falling knife, right? You want to be careful. Uh, what's your advice you're giving to people these days? They're still, you know, is it always a good time to buy? Is this a time to stay on the sidelines? <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to advise my clients on an individual basis. It's hard to give sort of blanket advice because everyone's situation is different and unique, but I do think if you're going to enter the market, you have to have, right now, you have to have a long-term outlook you have mm. to have i think you have to have at least like a sort of six to ten year window in terms right. of because i think the next couple of years in my opinion aren't going to be uh, generous in terms of returns for the housing market um and i think that uh yeah there's definitely more downside risk so it's really just negotiating aggressively and not chasing like i'm still seeing like occasionally you know yeah they're priced a little bit lower on the lower side but you're still seeing occasionally someone bid into multiple offers, like over asking price. And like, to me, that just doesn't make any sense in this, in this mm-hmm. market, like 33 or low in sales and you're getting involved in, in bidding wars. Like that's, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And there was a time where it did, right? That was the only way you were going to be able to get into the market, but you were going in with in a different set of circumstances than what we've got now. And that's for really sure. different. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you're seeing, Steve? Any insights um, we should pass along to our to our listeners here? I, I, yeah, well, I think we were talking about the pre-sale market right, yeah. before, and I think yeah. that's going to be the very interesting space to watch in 2020. As we talked about, there was a lot of speculation in that market. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, the valuations were pretty stretched for what people were paying. Right, um, and are there th- a ton of units coming online or scheduled to do so in, in 2020? That's a big yeah. So big we have milestone. like in Metro Vancouver, I think you have just over 40,000 units under construction. That's 40, a lot. That's, that's a record. <laughs> high so yeah. <laughs> you do all these units are coming to completion and a lot of them will start to come into completion sort of into 2020 yeah uh so end of 2019 into 2020 and onwards and so a lot of the, i think my main concern is the people that maybe are may struggle with financing because you have the mortgage stress test that also yeah. came into play but i think the problem is going to be that the unfortunately you just paid in some cases you just paid too much for the pre-sale and what happens is the bank, when you go to close, the bank reappraises the unit at the time of completion. Right. So the bank's going to say, well, yes, you maybe you paid $1,200 $1, per square foot, but we only think it's worth you know, eleven fifty a square foot. So we'll lend you based on that amount. Right. And so now you have this shortfall that you're going to have to basically put in more of a down payment. And so obviously, you know, some people I think are going to struggle to come up with those down payments. Mm-hmm. Some will unfortunately have to walk away from their deposits. Of course, that then creates potential lawsuits with the developer. Yeah. And we saw a little right. bit in 2008, 2009. I remember that, I think, on the Olympic Village, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I remember people walking away from their deposits or maybe getting sued for specific performance on the contract. So that is a risk. It's not just your deposit. You could actually be 
be sued for some damages there. Yeah, exactly. Well. And so I think that you're likely to see that probably, in my opinion, that's probably a 2020 thing. Right. Yeah. I was so surprised when I moved to Vancouver. I came from Toronto just over 10 years ago and so many conversations in Vancouver come back to real estate. Oh, and yeah. I think over the next year or so, even more of them are going to come back to real estate. It's going to stay tuned, watch the space. Right? Yeah, I think yeah. it's going to sort of unravel some of the the decipher between the good investment and what was the bad investment. So, yeah. you know, I think like any financial market, there's there's winners and there's losers and and uh, so we'll sort of see how things shape up here. It's an interesting time, so. Indeed. We've been talking with Steve Soretsky's Vancouver residential realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs, stevesoretsky.com, if you'd like to check that out. I, I, adv- I uh, encourage you to do that. He's got some good videos as well, some YouTube videos. Uh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.